how do you survive a divorce and write about it well? Alexandra Fuller will tell us about her latest memoir, Leaving Before the Rains Come. And it's a hard pill, I think, for not just women to swallow, but, you know, mothers to swallow and and families to swallow, because what that means is that you aren't, you know, going to be the sort of well-behaved woman in lockstep with society. What's the first novel by Miranda July like? Lauren Groff will join us to talk about her review of The First Bad Man. She's weird. She's kind of an oddball. And it's really, really easy to call something that's strange, quirky, to diminish its power. John Williams will update us on what's going on in the publishing world. And Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Alexandra Fuller joins us now from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. She is the author of several books, um, including a number of memoirs. And her most recent memoir is called Leaving Before the Rains Come, reviewed this week in the book review by Rachel Cusk. Hi, Alexandra. Hi. You have some of the great titles, I have to say, for <laughs> memoirs. Um, the first, of course, uh, such a brilliant and evocative title, Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight, an African Childhood, um, but also a Cocktail Hour Under the Tree of Forgetfulness. This is your third or your fourth memoir? Um, I think third. I, isn't it awful to be, you know, 45 and be writing your third memoir? But I think... There was another book, um, Scribbling the Cat, which was sort of a memoir, but really a reflection of a soldier that had, that had fought during the war that I grew up in. Did you have trepidation when you were thinking, okay, this is my third memoir before you wrote <laughs> yeah. this? Yes, because, you know, honestly, I, I heard somewhere Spalding Gray. I remember reading, I actually haven't read any of his books, but I was reading a review of his last book. This was years ago, and it, it seemed almost as if he wrote so many memoirs that eventually he just sort of wrote himself out of a life. And I thought this is, I'm really actually strongly in danger of doing that. I keep on and on going back to my own life. But, you know, one of the things that feels so true to me about the stories that come to me anyway, I don't know if this is true of all writers, is I don't have a choice. You know, it's almost like the children you have, you know that you want a child, and then, you know, you can hope and pray that it's, you know, a certain way. But there's no point trying to give birth to a child that hasn't just stated in you. And so I find these books are the same way. You know, I would, um, I wanted so much to write novels, and they just don't work out for me. They don't insist themselves on me the way that nonfiction does. Let's talk a little bit about the first memoir, um, because I think that it's this memoir is informed so much by your early childhood um, experience. So tell us a little bit about Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight and your childhood in Africa. So I grew up in um, what is now Zimbabwe. And during that country's civil war, I mean, it was then Rhodesia and the fight for independence was going on. Both my parents were fighting I'm on the white side of that war. And yeah, that war, which ended when I was 11, has really informed everything that I've done, everything. Um, Even when I haven't been writing about myself, I think I write to an eye um, to what conflict does to people, especially children, because I think that children are the ignored casualties of war. 
I mean, they have no say about whether or not their country goes to war, and yet I knew, just from my own experience, that it affects you for the rest of your life. I mean, now, of course, studies show that children of early childhood trauma have a very different way of responding to the world than children who don't grow up um, with early childhood trauma. And so, yeah, I think that that kind of out-of-my-control sense that the world was a dangerous and terrifying place, but also deeply beautiful and could be lost at any moment, and that my life might be lost at any moment. I think that what it did to me, and I think what it does to many children of war, and, you know, I mean, let me just hasten to add here that my experience compared to what people are going through in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and Congo and other wars uh, was, you know, a picnic. I really want that to be said, that I'm really sort of aware of that. But what it does, I think, is that it makes it so that you are never quite able to believe that there'll be a future. Mm -hmm. This particular memoir, I I described it at sort of most basic level, is is a memoir of divorce. Is that the way you think about it? Or how do you? No, I really don't. Although, And thank you for asking that, because I think for me, it really wasn't so much about the end of a marriage as about the beginning of an authentic self. And I think that, and so here's where the story becomes universal. When two people marry and very young and very different circumstances, I was, you know, 22, coming out of quite a chaotic life. What you do in your 20s sets you up for who you're going to be in your 40s. And certainly getting married that young put me on a raft of, I think, safety. But it also made me mistrust my own upbringing and my own childhood. And what was so interesting was that by the time I sort of got to my early 40s, I realized that a lot of the lessons of my childhood had been correct. You know, that chaos is sort of the order of the world, that that there are things you cannot insure against, that it's right not to trust <laughs> the institutions that say that they, you know, can take care of you. Mm-hmm. That at the end of the day you can you must, in fact, live your life on your terms. Which sounds incredibly selfish, I think, and and it's a hard pill, I think, for not just women to swallow, but you know, mothers to swallow and and families to swallow because what that means is that you aren't, you know, going to be the sort of well-behaved woman in lockstep with society. Do you think that that the experience of the chaos of your childhood led you to seek refuge in the safety of marriage at such a young age? Oh, yes, absolutely. And you know what's so funny is at 22, if you'd asked me then, I would have violently rejected that idea. (laughs) Of course. You know, but in part, what I would have said is, I've seen so much. I've done so much. I'm so much older than than 22-year-olds anywhere else. And and that, in many, many ways, was true. I mean, I, I mean, I had already seen so much of life at 22, which is very common for people growing up the way and where I did. And also, you know, just around me in Zambia, life expectancy by the time I was getting married was 36. I mean, the whole sort of generation, my generation, was dying of HIV AIDS. And I I think that that does something to your your sense of how long you're going to be around and, and how much time you have to do things. I think I bolted through life under the assumption that I wasn't going to be around that long. 
tell us a little bit about the circumstances of um, you, you met your husband in Zambia. Mm-hmm. Who was he? Where were you at the time? What were you doing? And what led to the marriage? Well, so I was away to university and, and back for the summer holidays, which is just heavenly bliss, you know. And by the time we reached Zambia as a family, you know, I was 16 when we got to Zambia. Oh, what a refuge. Uh, the country has never seen war. It was independent early. It was independent in 1964. So it felt like a, a, a resolved place. It didn't feel the way that Zimbabwe did. This awful hangover of the violence of the war and then a lot of unresolved racial issues, you know, that have dragged on and on and on until this very day. Yes, yeah, so I mean, I think I was in this place of kind of peace and relief. But, you know, also never wanting to leave Africa. I mean, whenever I went back, and, and by that I mean, you know, Zambia, whenever I went back, I, just, I mean, just the smell of the place. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was really, I think, intoxicated with it. And then to meet this, um, he was a, a river guide from the U.S., Charlie, who said that he wanted to stay in Zambia for, you know, at least 15 years, which for me seemed like a lifetime <laughs> by then. <laughs> And I thought, oh, this is everything. This is this is perfect. I will have all the safety and security of this river guide, you know, this, with his U.S. passport. I mean, that just seemed unbelievably safe. And yet I will still have all the adventure and, and joy of living in this place I love so much. Of course, none of that worked out. I was going to say, how did that work out? <laughs> yeah, not so well. <laughs> but you nonetheless stayed married for, for how long? 20 years. 20 years, and, and have three children yes. from that marriage. What did it take to, to end the marriage? How did that come about? You would think by now, having written about it and thought about it and talked about it, I, w- I would know exactly what it was. But I think somebody asked me recently in an interview, the reason I married Charlie was because he was loving and reliable, and the reason I ended the marriage because he was loving and reliable. That was the question. And I was sort of astonished. I was too astonished to answer, really. You know, what I said is, you know, I can't speak to how Charlie was. And um, the response was, well, you know, of course you can. You're a writer. And I, and I said, no, I, I mean, really it got down to, I think, the fact that if I could still speak for Charlie, I would know him well enough to have stayed married to him. I mean, you don't give up a marriage of 20 years and the security of your children's lives because, you're bored <laughs> right. or you're somehow dissatisfied or, and I think a lot of couples experiences, I think it's sort of taboo to speak about it, but we had entered the sort of contract that I, I say in the book was like a tiny, most favored nations um, alliance where we, we were sort of on each other's side financially, supposedly, but that there was very little connection anymore. I mean, he had become a realtor. I uh, was a writer. And I was writing, I mean, by the time the marriage really started to dissolve, I was writing about the oil boom in Wyoming and feeling this real rage against the rapacious way in which we as a culture were consuming our land and our men and women, you know, both in the military and on oil rigs. And the irresponsible way in which we were sort of consuming the present so that there could be no future for our children. And, you know, on the other side of it, there I was married to someone and, you know, 
me personally, who who was directly kind of involved in perpetuating that bubble. So when the whole thing burst, it wasn't personal to Charlie, but it was as if the whole structure of the world that he had believed in, you know, that there was such a thing as cheap money and that you could sort of just have mortgage upon mortgage and, and that this, I don't know, insane sort of way of, of feeling entitled to so much. But when that all crumbled, everything that we were crumbled with it. There was just nothing. You know, I, I've written in the book several times, you know, that our house fell, which is, is actually an African expression or from Zimbabwe. It's, 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 you know, I grew up hearing that. This house cannot stand. Um, originally, I think, a biblical expression, but Zimbabweans used it to mean your whole structure of self has dissolved. Since you say, you said at the beginning that you don't think of this as a as a memoir of divorce, but um, more about a, a new beginning, were there other books, other memoirs that you read during the process while you were thinking about this book as either, you know, something that you aspire to or something that you, you know, the opposite that you sought to avoid doing? I think the obvious one is Elizabeth Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love, because I remember when that book came out, and like everybody else, I think on the planet, I read it, and or I read as much of it as I, you know, could, and it was so. I mean, the writing's beautiful. I think she's witty and and wonderful, but it was so far from my experience. Mm-hmm. I I just remember feeling this sort of deep bitterness that okay, well, yay for for that, but that's not how it is for you know women with children. I mean, I think once you have children, your marriage contract changes completely. You are now at least in my mind, you're now bound to create a safe, loving environment for these little things that you've brought, you know. Into the no world. running off to India. No <laughs> running off to India. Yeah, so I like to joke that this was the sort of, I mean, there was no eat, pray, love. It, it was more sort of starve, meditate, and be terrified. Well, I hope that doesn't scare readers off from <laughs> from reading the book. I mean, I think one of the reasons that memoirs starts to feel like such an assertion is when you've had an experience that you feel as if you're the only person in the world who's ever had it. And of course, that's not true, right? Millions of people get divorced. But I couldn't find any literature that said, here's what it looks like when you start to feel schizophrenic in the context of a divorce or like two people, as if you are a split personality, as if you have to be someone outside of the marriage and somebody else within it, that you begin to hear, you know, voices, not literally, but that aren't your own. And it is you speaking. You just, the tone of your voice changes when when you speak to your partner because you're no longer connecting in a sort of genuine way. And I wanted to write that experience you know, because I honestly couldn't find anywhere where it existed. All right. Well, it exists now. Um, the book, again, is Leaving Before the Rains Come by Alexander Fuller. Alexander, thank you so much for joining us. Pamela, thank you. It was a pleasure. John Williams is here with some news for the publishing world. Hi, John. Hi, Pamela. 
So uh, another uh, David Mitchell novel, it sounds like. Yeah, something of a surprise. I mean, he writes fairly big, ambitious books, so it sometimes takes a couple of years between. Um, but his last book, The Bone Clocks, just came out this past fall. And now we have news that uh, this October, he'll publish his seventh novel called Slade House, which Random House will publish on October 27th. Is it a, a real novel or a micro novel? What is it? <laughs> it's a real novel. Um, it, it started as the most micro of things, which was a story that he published on Twitter last summer as a sort of experiment. Um, but then I think it grew grew from that into this five-part novel about the life of a haunted house and the different people who have lived there and different episodes that have taken place there. So it sounds like a, you know, a similarly ambitious effort to his previous books. And, you know, when The Bone Clocks came out, there was a lot of talk about how he was starting to talk about all of his books being interconnected and how certain characters showed up throughout all of them. And this might be one giant universe he's writing about. And um, there's a hint here that there will be a character uh, from The Bone Clocks that readers will recognize in, in the new book. Huh, haunted House. It sounds like the Halloween timing is is deliberate here. Just perfect. All right. And then also um, some sad news from the publishing world. Yeah, a big departure from the literary world. Um, Robert Stone died last week at 77. And he was, you know, one of, I think, the post-war generation's most um, lauded novelists. I think people probably know him best for um, Dog Soldiers and A Flag for Sunrise. And he spent time uh, in the Navy. He also spent time with the hippies in California. He had a very full life. He wrote a lot about America's ambitions in the world, where those things go wrong sometimes. In the obituary that we ran, there was a quote from Mona Simpson uh, from the Times Book Review in 92. And she said, there has always been a strain of American fiction that seems to grow directly from Melville and Conrad. The foremost voice of this sensibility in our time is Robert Stone. His first book came out in 1968. Right. And then his last one was just recently. And was it in 2012? I think it was 2013. And um, that was sort of a shorter book. And, a, and it was set in New England, which is rare for him to be so genteel. And it was set on a campus. Uh, and it was kind of a departure, but it also received good reviews. He also wrote a memoir about his time in the 60s a few years ago. I think it was probably about 10 years ago at this point. All right. Well, one of the first um, sad, unfortunate obituaries in the literary world for 2015. Yeah, a big one. He'll definitely be missed. Thanks, John. Thanks, Pamela. Lauren Groff joins us now from Gainesville, Florida. She is a fiction writer, uh, most recently author of the novel Arcadia, and this week reviews in the book review The First Bad Man by Miranda July. Lauren, hi there. Hi. So this is Miranda July's first novel. And um, Miranda July is one of those people who is like incredibly famous within a very small world. But not everyone, uh, not all of our listeners, um, I expect, knows who she is. So could you tell us a little bit about the seemingly ubiquitous multi-hyphenate Miranda July? Absolutely. As a figure, I I find her actually very fascinating. Um, She's an artist in pretty much every that you could imagine. Uh, She's written um, a couple of books, one of which, her previous fiction book, is a short story collection called No One Belongs Here More Than You, which won a number of prizes, and she has stories in The New Yorker and Harper's and McSweeney's. She has written, directed, and acted in a couple of films, um, one of which is Me and You and Everyone We Know, which did very, very well at uh, Cannes and a film called The Future. She does music videos. She has two rock albums. She's a performance artist, and a lot of her work is 
in large collections all over the world. Um, and she she even made an app, cell phone app, I believe, and it's called Somebody, where you're supposed to deliver messages in person via the app. And it's very funny. So uh, she's just a very interesting and wild thinker in a lot of ways, and she has extraordinary abilities to follow through on her plans. Why does she tend to divide people? Like People have sort of very established opinions about her, it seems. People do have very established opinions of her. You know, I'm not necessarily sure why they do. I think a lot of people tend to dismiss what she does as lightweight, uh, but I think that's a misreading of who she is. You know, sometimes when a woman is funny, she is not taken as seriously as she should be. And I, and I think Miranda July is actually a very funny person. Um, and she's also very deadpan, and uh, she's wry. And mm-hmm. I think these are things that, you know, can strike the wrong, some readers, the wrong way. It's funny because she often gets slapped with the labels either twee or whimsical. Or um, quirky, yes. Right, right. The, the dread quirky. But when you describe her humor as wry, that doesn't quite seem the right criticism. Right, right. Well, I said this in the review, too, but it, it does seem as if it's almost dismissive to call her quirky or whimsical, you know, because what she's a very, very serious artist in many ways. We do gender some of the language that we use when we are talking about books. Um, in this case, you know, Miranda July's work, she's she's weird. She's kind of an oddball. And it's really, really easy to call something that's strange, quirky, to diminish its power. In your review, um, you say that um, The First Bad Man is a wry, smart companion on any day. It's warm. It has a heartbeat and a pulse. This is a book that is painfully alive. Let's talk about the book itself. What, what is it about? So this book is about a woman named Cheryl Glickman. And Cheryl is in her 40s. She, uh, she's sort of sad. You know, she, she begins the book as... Um, an unwilling doormat to her own life. Uh, she has this thing called a globus hystericus, which is a psychosomatic lump in her throat. Uh, she has this unrequited crush on a man named Philip. Uh, she works at a place called Open Palm, which began as a nonprofit uh, training women to fight back against aggressors. But over time became a purveyor of fitness videos based on <laughs> fighting, uh, women fighting back. And she sees a the spirit, I think, of a baby that she had met once when she was a very little girl herself. And she she meets this baby in the world, in other babies. And she calls him Kubelko Bondi, Kubelko Bondi. So all of this is very funny. It's a funny setup. And then her bosses at Open Palm force her, because she's so submissive, to take in their daughter, whose name is Clee, and Clee is just the worst house guest. I mean, she's incredibly sexy. She doesn't listen to Cheryl. She sort of blows up Cheryl's very neatly ordered life in a lot of ways. And she's also, she just, she calls herself a misogynist, uh, Clee does. So she just hates parts of Cheryl that are the submissive parts of Cheryl, and she starts beating Cheryl up in a, in a way. And what surprises Cheryl and the reader is that uh, Cheryl really, really loves this fight club. And through fighting back and learning how to fight back, she she 
seizes control of her own sexuality. So th- that's the first part of the book, actually. And then um, Cheryl and Clee start to have a sexual relationship. And I don't know how far I should go before I give away the rest of the book. Who is Cheryl Glipkman? And uh, did she feel like a believable character? Did she feel like, I don't know, the, the you and me and you and everyone we know? Or did she sort of a um, an other, is she a likable character? Since that's always asked. Her voice is so good. She does feel like a real character, although she feels like a real character in a book with not all that many real characters in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the rest of the the cast is sort of very quickly drawn. Um, but Cheryl, you know, she she becomes more real by the end of the book, I think. she She starts off inhabiting a life that's so circumscribed um, that she doesn't quite realize herself how how lonely she is and how miserable and how sad she is. And then by the end of the book, she really has sort of given birth to her own real round character. It's interesting that you use the word circumscribed to describe her, um, her world because um, one of your criticisms of the book in the review um, is this kind of solipsistic sense um, uh, I loved this metaphor um, that you said that that it seemed that you know people stopped seemed to stop existing as soon as the protagonist would turn her eye away from him. Quote the way a little boy sometimes assumes other people wind down like robots as soon as he leaves the room. My little boys definitely both think that other people are robots. That's not even <laughs> a question. They they believe that they are the only real people on the planet. That is something I think that maybe would strike a lot of Miranda July's critics the wrong way in in a lot of her art, actually, because she really does concentrate on people who are lonely. And she she looks at people who want to make connections. And and at times when you're inhabiting the head of a person who wants very badly to make connections, it does become solipsistic. I do believe that, you know, it, the world around Cheryl does seem a little bit closed off and a little bit real life only exists within Cheryl in the book. Another thing you noted in in your review, and I don't know if it's necessarily negative, it could be interpreted as positive, too, is that, that the book is a challenging one. How How is this novel challenging? Novel is challenging because it's so risky. I mean, I think Miranda July did a really wonderful job of leaping at the challenge of writing a first novel. Um, you know, a lot of times it does constrain a person to know that there's been 10 years since her first fiction book. You know, it becomes a psychological heavy weight to tow around. You know, she she didn't do what was expected, and she didn't write a careful book. She wrote a book in which there's a two-woman fight club, <laughs> and, the, right. and the fight club turns sexual. Some of the characters are just frankly repellent. I mean, a lot of the characters are repellent, um, and there is not a lot of likability. But I honestly, I don't think that that's something that Miranda July cares about. And I, I also don't think that a, that's something that a literary writer generally tends to care about. And right. Miranda July is very literary. I'm sure she doesn't go into writing thinking, I want everybody to love every single character on the page. There are things in this book that I haven't ever seen before in fiction. Can you give a uh, name, sort of describe one without too much of a spoiler? Um, well, yeah. So so the Fight Club is one. And, and when Cheryl talks about the Fight Club... <laughs> She's in the middle of being beat up by Clee, and she says, this was the opposite of getting mugged. 
I didn't mugged every day of my life, and this is the first day I wasn't mugged. And I love that. I love that idea that in the middle of this harrowing experience, she's she's finding this uh, liberation. It's very, very funny, and it made me laugh out loud the first time I read it. The last question, since again, as you said, this is a first novel, um, and she has written um, before a collection of short stories, No One Belongs Here More Than You. Did this book feel to you like it, like, it was a progression from that short story collection. And also, did it feel like part of this huge, larger body of work that we know of as, you know, Miranda July? Or did it feel like something new from her? It definitely does feel like uh, a part of her larger body of work. It's all of a piece, I think. Um, And I think she's remarkably consistent that way. She's very, very prickly. I don't know if it's much of a progression from the short story collection. And I say this as a huge fan of the story collection. You know, I think it's a it's a really interesting book and it's clearly um encapsulating some sort of the some sort of zeitgeist. <laughs> I don't think it's the best novel Miranda July um will write. And I think that she's going to write something that's really gonna take the top of our heads off next. All right. Lauren Groff, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Lauren reviews this week in the book review The First Bad Man which is the first novel by Miranda July. We've got Greg Coles here with Bestseller News. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. What's new on the list this week? Well, people are really buying books again. There's a lot of churn. Um, On the hardcover fiction list, there are one, two, three, four, five, six new titles. So that's uh, practically half the list. A lot of the sort of mass market stuff that uh, we're familiar with, starting down at number 14, um, a thriller by Joel C. Rosenberg um, called The Third Target about ISIS and, mm-hmm. and, you know, one of these very of-the-moment thrillers that he writes. Um, then down at number 13, just above it on the list, uh, Jane Ann Krentz is back with a novel called Trust No One. Um, then jumping all the way up to number six, uh, a young author, he's 26, named Pierce Brown, has the second book in his Red Rising fantasy trilogy. That book is called Golden Sun. Um, the first book also hit, I think, the extended list, uh, but now that this series is really getting some traction, finding a real audience among the Hunger Games crowd. And uh, Golden Sun, book two, is on the list at number six. Uh, Then at number five, Bernard Cornwell returns with another uh, historical novel about ancient England, England in, uh, or Britain, rather, in, in the 10th century, called The Empty Throne. That's new at number five from Bernard Cornwell. Um, Stuart Woods is back on the list at number four with a new novel called Insatiable Appetites. And finally, Alan Bradley, the septuagenarian Canadian author, uh, mystery writer, has a new novel out in his Flavia de Luce series about a tween girl who's fascinated by chemistry and talented at solving mysteries. That novel is called As Chimney Sweepers Come to Dust. And it is new at number three. Before we go to nonfiction, can we just pause for a moment to be happy about the fact that continuing at number one is Anthony Doerr's novel, All the Light We Cannot See, one of our own 10 best and, and one of your favorites. I really liked that book a lot. It's found a big audience, I think, among reading groups. Um, 
And yeah, last week it was number one also. It, it spent 36 weeks on the list so far, and most of those have been on the top half of the list. I, I think it started to slip, and then as the holidays approached. Um, and it made so many year-end best-of lists. Exactly. Does it feel like a book club kind of book to you? Is there a lot to discuss? Yeah, it's a World War II novel, and it weaves a couple of stories, um, one about a blind French girl who ends up in the resistance and the other about a German private who is a radio prodigy, an engineering prodigy. It kind of tells the backstories of their lives and how they've reached this point where eventually uh, they will intersect. It has some real like fairy tale elements. There's a, a potentially cursed diamond in it. Um, you know, it's just a pretty gripping story at purely at the narrative level. Um, but the writing is really beautiful too, and it's got these short, quick chapters. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot for book groups to kind of dig into to keep them entertained, but also to talk about in terms of the writing and the characterization and the history of it. All right. So for those who have not yet read Anthony Doerr's <laughs> novel, um, what's new on nonfiction? At number seven, Stephen Brill, uh, America's Bitter Pill, is new on the list. That's his book, of course, about the Health Care Act and, and about American health care in general. Reviewed on our cover last week by Zephyr Teachout. Uh, yes, that's right. At number 11, the actor and comedian Patton Oswalt uh, has a memoir called Silver Screen Fiend. It's looking back at how in the late 90s um, in Los Angeles, he became a real habitué of the new Beverly cinema where he watched a lot of old art films and really kind of learned his craft, learned his trade through that um, as a real fan of of old cinema. Oswald also wrote a review recently uh, for you. It was his first review, right? Yeah, hopefully not his last. He did, um, he, he did a great job. And then uh, finally, at number nine, I skipped over this, um, the food blogger Andy Mitchell, a 29-year-old food blogger, has a memoir out called It Was Me All Along. Andy Mitchell has an interesting story. Um, when she was 20 years old, she weighed 260 pounds. She wore a size 22 pants. And this memoir is about how she struggled not just with obesity, um, but with her kind of emotional relationship to food. She ate obsessively. Um, she kind of relied on food as an emotional crutch. Um, but her father had died at age 40. Um, he weighed 350 pounds. And when she hit 20, she just kind of panicked that um, she, she saw a future where she just kept getting bigger and bigger um, and nothing good was in store for her. And so um, over the course of, of the next year and the next years, she ended up losing 132 pounds. It did not make her happier. She, she again, felt miserable and obsessed with food. Um, but she went into therapy, um, confronted some eating disorders that she had. She's um, now 29 years old. She weighs about 150 pounds. She says that feels right to her. And um, she's, she's blogging about food, you know, recipes. She seems to have a much healthier relationship with food. This book, I think, got a, a boost. Um, she gave a TED Talk that's gotten a lot of attention um, and was featured in People magazine. And so It Was Me All Along by Andy Mitchell, new at number nine on the nonfiction list. Oh, have a nice title. Yeah. All yeah. right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. 